0: 17 of the Running Man Self Regulation Skills and Self Improvement Project podcast with your host, me, Dr. Armando Dominguez, health psychologist, PhD in health psychology, and also a licensed professional counselor and an adjunct professor at a local community college. So, our topic today is going to be on categorical thinking and judgment what we'll call self-confirming, self-affirming bias and how we degrade our bestest of all thinking, our rationale and reasoning under stress in the direction of categorical thinking and judgments based on that very categorical thinking where we may put people in what we would call an understanding of them or what we would call putting people in a box and uh When we discuss things with people, often we have a self-confirming bias going on that's underlying, especially if we're trying to get somebody to understand or believe what we're saying, or to create a sense of influence that they may go along, or maybe even have them at least entertain the idea of the possibility that we're somehow correct, or that we have something useful. And this is natural. This is a very normal thing. Now, things can get exaggerated and become manipulative and we're not going to necessarily just discuss that, but we will be discussing kind of the con- continuum of how stress impacts how we not only reason and are open minded, generally speaking, flexible in response when we're dealing with our day to day lives, but also when stress goes up, how we start to degrade into a more categorical, more binary, black and white up down concrete way of thinking. and. The two working terms here are going to be noun and verb. We're not going through an English class here, but these things are particularly critical in understanding not only how we speak, but also how we may encourage beliefs, both healthy and unhealthy, in others. And we have to be careful with our little ones especially, because often we may speak things over them in the sense that they become that catch-22 That they can't get away from that often will create a stress or resentment or a sense of I can't get away from this. I am implicated, blamed, and therefore labeled and I must be this because my authorities have told me as much, whether it be somebody we care about, a parent, maybe even a teacher or even a supervisor or somebody that has authority in our, our workspace or someone who says things very strongly emotionally that may lead us to be suggestible to what the impact is of that message, and uh, it may have long-term effects. So, without further delay, categorical thinking. What is this? Well, one of the first things is that it's not a bad thing, and I will say that because we categorically uh, relate to things sometimes by putting things in order of they belong in this group or that, Whenever we have shoes, for instance, and we put all the little shoes in this box and all the big shoes in that box, we are by default categorizing, and those things are okay. But whenever we're interacting with folks and we categorize them based on what we assume them to be or uh, we assume that there are certain characteristics or traits that we have noted that are kind of steady and not necessarily trending, but rather continuous over time, then we realize that these may be character traits. (laughs) Maybe in some cases, some would say a defect, and that's rather unkind, but uh, could be that. But also, uh, we have to determine, where am I going to put that to make sense in my world, my own mental world inside my own narrative, and how I make sense of what I call my life? So when uh, we are working with somebody or when we live with somebody, we have these running assumptions of things because we're efficient by nature. We don't want to waste time and going into deep thought about every little thing, especially if it's something that continues to recur in our environment. And that's only the natural. And of course, we don't want to lose time because that is our most precious of all resources that we have. And what do I do whenever I interact with somebody? Often. At the biological level, most of what this podcast has been discussing has been touching on the more subtle things that uh, are often soft skills. Sometimes are um, what are referred to as the interactive qualities that we use as a skill, so to speak, uh, whenever we're talking with people and interpreting things and making sense of and finding out how to deliver a better message and how to receive a better message. And uh, those are all good and well. But what we're going to do is get into the nuts and bolts, two of them, noun and verb, of how it is that often we speak that sometimes can generate a belief, an influence, and also create maybe something that could be a a negative bind or a catch-22. Especially in our little ones, we have to be careful how we speak because we don't want to put them in a position where they're being spoken things in absolutes whenever they're very concrete-minded and not given them the tools later to realize why the information was given to them in the way that they were. So, noun. Whenever we speak of a noun, essentially that's an object thing, but uh, often whenever we speak to somebody or about somebody and we categorize them, Uh, Often we will label and name them, and the noun is where we're talking about it being more so an identification. So an example would be if I have two friends and both of them like running, but one of them I describe as running or gone running. That's verb. Their action is what it is that they're doing. But my other friend, I call them, a runner, because they like running. They're a runner, a runner. I have archetyped them. I have labeled them. I have named them, but I've also given them an identity. And there is an assumed sense of knowing or or nature that goes with that, that gives me, as the labeler namer, uh, a sense of leverage by being able to speak of them with a sense of authority. Because there is an assumed sense of knowing that goes with being able to tell tell somebody that this person is a runner. Well, question, how would I know? Well, I know them. They're my friend, and they enjoy running, and they do marathons and five ks Okay, so that's a backup. That's somebody that might have some information, but what if it's somebody that very quickly categorizes based on what things look like on the surface, and it may not be particularly correct? This is part of the leveraging of the noun, the naming, the archetyping, And also the categorically assigning of somebody by virtue of the way we speak of them. Versus somebody that enjoys running. This person is a runner. There's a difference not only in the feel of it, but also how we represent it in our mind. The next part is the verb. The part of my first friend that goes running. I did not describe them as a runner, but yet there's not an identity associated with that, so therefore there's not a concreteness to my description of them. It's more so what they do versus who they are. Now, this is not really splitting hairs, but rather we're making a point of determining how careful am I when I speak and how flippantly do I say things sometimes. Not caring because it's just language or just words and words are cheap anyway, which is a very dangerous assumption, by the way, and I say that with a great deal of care and uh, disdain when I have to say things like that. But often things are, in the realm of the speaker, uh, leverage, influence, and power whenever you're trying to create an influence or a change with somebody that maybe you're interacting with. So why are these two details, noun and verb, so important? to categorical thinking. One is that whenever we have stress, heart rate, elevation, blood flow leaving the front part of our brain, and we have marginalized uh, capacity to have the best of our cognition working, and our IQ is limited because of the blood flow being sent to our muscles, then I have less to think with and reason with, which means if I really try to think deeply, that means I'm going to get frustrated by default. I don't have the, the resident blood flow carrying the blood sugar to do what we call the think or thinking process in that moment. So we may be more apt to be efficient and to adopt an expedient of what we would call an assumption. That cognitive overlay that we use that was thought by someone else, that pre-thought think that we use to make sense of stuff just so we can get from here to there and not waste any unnecessary energy. If you get the feel of what I'm saying you're you you're understanding that there's a bit of invalidation of the individual and that means that we value them less somehow not that we don't care but sometimes whenever we speak we don't speak carefully carefully not in the sense that I want to hurt somebody but rather full of care in the sense that we recognize and validate the human being whom we just labeled so what we want to do is keep from going in the direction of categorical thinking, because the higher the level of stress, if we look at the Yerkes-Dodson uh, model, the inverted U, the closer we get off of the average uh, heart rate, jump into about 100 to 110, which would be considered low-intensity, steady-state cardio. You'd be breathing hard, but you're still able to speak and kind of think. We have some limitation there to be able to do really higher reasoning. Some, it's marginal. But you start getting past that into the 140-beat range to about the 160-beat range where we're at about 70-80% to 80% of our, our cardiovascular capacity whenever we're under load, exercising, this sort of thing. There's when we start seeing some simplification of thought where it's really obvious and there's a delay in our ability to engage the thinker, not that the thinking isn't there. It is. It just takes a whole lot more effort. And whenever you start to redline and get into where we get closer to that 200 beats a minute or wherever... Somebody may be physically compromised due to illness, injury, chronic pain, and their heart rate jumps to that. We're starting to see things that resemble anxiety and panic. Things get overly simplified, and we're so far into the categorical thinking that we get into the approach avoid mode. We start seeing things as friend or foe, threat or non threat. Do I run or do I fight? And if my vision starts to narrow to where I start seeing closer to what would be the end of a coffee can in front of my face, that tunnel vision quality, then I start having to pant left and right to take in my environment because I can't see as well to my periphery now. That's a default setting once again. And during this time, what do you think our thinking resembles? It's not depth. It's not careful. It's very simplistic. And it's how can I get out of here and not become much more self-centric. I'm no longer considering... Am I hurting somebody's feelings when I say something? I may be getting rather verbose and loud, monosyllabic, and maybe even a little insulting and and, and cursing because of the distress on I'm no longer engaging and interacting. I am now in the sense of now, and I can't get out of the discomfort, so I'm in the immediate experience of what I am doing, not in the sense of flow but rather in the more negative, eternal now. I wish this was over in the dilation time effect. When is this going to be over? That feeling of, how can I get out of here? What do I need to do? Notice the I that I'm speaking with, we become very self-centric. Not self-centric, self-centric in the sense that we are more uh, survival-oriented in this further uh, end of the yerkes dodson uh, model. And then whenever that stress goes down, we come out of the model on the rising side of it, opposite rising side of it, where our heart rate starts to drop. And this is where our thinking starts coming back and our reason turns on. And this is where we do the phase pump. Man, I wish I had that back in recall. Because we have a very good recording of what happened. And now we're stuck with, well, what did we do? I can't stop that. And then we start having bad feelings, maybe even guilt and shame and, and apologies after the fact. So the categorical thinking becomes more prominent in the sense that things become overly simplified. Now, you can have high-level cognitive process when things are safe. Your assumption of safety is man, your heart rate is nice and even If there's no threat to you. And that type of categorical thinking is very useful to be able to do things that are rational, reasonable, and relatively linear. But when we default into more categorical thinking, it becomes a simplified, concrete quality. And that is not the typical that we experience whenever we are not under threat. The importance of this is recognizing how I speak of things. Now, here's the second part. Since we've gotten through the description of the categorical, think of what stems from that. As a result, if I'm always thinking this way, or I'm around people, the influence—remember the average or the five that I spend most time with—and maybe the groups that I may be around. Think about groupthink. Think about mob mentality. What kind of influence if we have 200 people out there and each one of those people is around a group of five to ten individuals? How much influence is there, especially if they align their beliefs based on the feelings they're having and everyone has the same face, either grimacing, yelling? You've seen things like this in that football game where one side is against the other and we're, wow, we're dressed the same way we wearing the same colors. Doesn't that mean that I'm somehow aligned in belief and support in a direction? Well, yes. We see on television where the soccer world finals get violent at times. Riots. People getting hurt and killed over a piece of leather inflated with air. Well, there's more meaning to that, of course. And to be able to paired down to what I just did, really points out how ridiculous it is. Even though the games are fun and they're amazing, they create lots of camaraderie and family time good stuff too. But the potential is there. To get into that idiocracy. That idiocy more correctly. Versus buying into the idiocracy of thinking that it is so important that it's okay to hurt people. So what I'm pointing out is that the seeds of categorical thinking can grow a judicious quality, one that could be overly judgmental in a negative sense, one that could be categorically judging, assuming that the assumptions are correct, that there's a sense of knowing by the noun that I ascribe or the archetype I ascribe to somebody, and therefore the people and the people groups that fall within that. There, there, there must be some truth to it because I feel like this and that's my evidence to support and continue thinking that way. What I just described is basically the the seeds of prejudice. Not necessarily racial prejudice in particular but the prejudice in the sense that we have what is called the self-confirming bias and a self-affirming bias. I'm affirming what I am doing by feeling a certain way about it, but I'm confirming it because I'm also finding and seeking evidence those that are around me, the five that I'm supposedly the average of, or maybe in the group or the stadium in which I am being a fan is plenty of evidence and it's very strong and it's immediate it's concrete and I can feel it right now. So it feels rather evidentiary, but it's also rather confusing because it doesn't necessarily point at the reality, but more so at distortion. And the problem is that distortion is very powerful and it is influential and it is concrete. So it can definitely shape beliefs when we're suggestible. So if we're under stress, you stress, I'm enjoying this, having hot dogs and and yelling and cheering and listening to music and doing the, I belong to this huge crowd thing. There's an acceptance quality. That means my suggestibility has gone up. And what is the environment suggesting to me? What has it suggested to me? Wearing these colors, belonging in this group, I somehow belong. But as soon as everybody goes home and gets in their vehicles and drives their separate way through their different homes, that's no longer the case. You somehow have these memories of and some good feelings and recalls, and that's okay. But you're not going to go over to some stranger's house and have dinner with them or go and hang out with them thereafter just simply because you wore the same colors. There are probably some people there that do not have the same political affiliation, nor have the same likes, or maybe character-wise, y'all just don't click. So notice I just spoke about the things that aren't assumed as a result of belonging to that group, the human dynamics, (laughs) the details. And we got to be willing to cut through the veneer of social interaction. And that is a big social thing. I certainly like the idea of organized sports and the fact that they teach good ethic, moral, and Group dynamics, also communication, accountability, and responsibility to others versus just the individual self, if you're playing. But also, there's a dark side to it, and that's the part that I'm talking about. Whenever we become categorically defaulted in the way you think, in the way you reason as a result of stress, This doesn't just happen in big events. It also happens in our day-to-day interactions, how we relate with people, how we speak with each other, how we do business, and whether or not we approach somebody that may need directions. So it's a huge influence. And whenever we do categorically think, whenever things are safe, it's okay. It's a useful tool. It's whenever we're stressful that we default into the more categorical quality, more concrete way of thinking that we start having issues and start moving into oversimplified judgment and therefore a prejudicial way of looking at things that may actually close our mind to any potentially useful tools, especially if someone from the outside is saying, hey, it's going to be okay and there's no sense of trust. You're not hearing that. We're defaulted into reading body language and listening to the tones and Try and determine if it matches, and if it doesn't, my sense of safety, safety goes down, and their sense of threat may go up, especially if I start demonstrating that I'm agitated and I don't want you close. stay away. Now, that's been a lot in a little bit, and I certainly wanted to discuss this as a part of what we've been discussing up until now with the Running Man podcast. And these are tools that are self-awareness, tools that help us in self-regulatory uh, skills in the sense that the more aware we are of these things, the more apt we are to be able to preemptively use these tools to keep things from getting to the point where we do stress. The goal of this podcast is to teach you things that will help you mitigate stressors, avoid stress when you can. You can't perfectly, but you will. By using these tools, effectively minimize not only the impact of those negative situations, those stressful situations, but you may be able to avoid them or even derail them or even shape and influence them into something that is totally not stressful, maybe useful or beneficial to whomever it is you're with. Somebody could be family, friend, husband, wife, loved one, co-worker, and not necessarily have to go through unnecessary stress, upset and that's hopefully what you'll be able to gain from the t- tools that I teach in this podcast. And I'm hoping that you'll be able to pass this along and share it. And I hope you follow and uh, use these tools. And if you have any commentary for me, please contact me and leave it at get skills Project at Gmail. And if there's something you'd like to hear me discuss on this podcast, I'm happy to assist with that. And I certainly have enjoyed talking to y'all. And we'll catch y'all on the next podcast and walk well.